No my Heidi my Kite no Hotaka. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National Wallace. Chapman here. Now, Med Service has issued uh, orange heavy rain warnings for Hawke's Bay for 25 hours to 10 a.m. Saturday, Gisborne for 19 hours to 4 a.m. Saturday, and Coromandel for 17 hours to 2 a.m. Saturday. And this, I'm just reading uh, the tweet from Weather Watch uh, saying it's surreal to say this again for Auckland, but one or two months worth of rain is going to fall in some places today and already has done north of the city in rural areas, tracking southwards today and tonight. So please do get in touch. Let us know how you are doing, where you are, what's happening in your area. Uh, text me 2101 and we will endeavour to keep you up to date with the very latest information on RNZ National. And after four, we cross over to Hawke's Bay, see how things are there. Also, there is a concern about the drop-off in the number of volunteers in Hawke's Bay, where the task of cleaning up is still daunting. Uh, They need many more volunteers. Chloe Johnson runs a volunteer Facebook group in Hawke's Bay, and we talk with her uh, today on the programme. Also on the panel, new natural disaster insurance law passes in Parliament. We discuss what that means. And another topic on Friday's panel, people are being charged extra legroom on airplanes. Wouldn't you think legroom is a fundamental right anyway? Why then are people being charged more for more legroom? And I had a thought today, and I would love your input on this. This morning, my little son woke up super excited because he had his first show and tell today, cicadas. He had two cicadas in a little box uh, on top of cotton wool. And I recall a show and tell I did, age 10, and I did a presentation of the pros and cons of marijuana. And you could have heard a pin drop. Can you recall a show and tell that you did? Text me, 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. With me this afternoon, we have Sue Kedgley, author, women's advocate and former Green MP. Sue, kia ora, good to have you on the panel. Kia ora, Wallace, good to be here. So we have Martin Bosley, owner of Yellow Brick Road Seafood. He's a councillor for South Wairarapa District Council and a food columnist. Martin, great to have you back in. Thank you, Wallace, great to be back. And uh, just coming back to some weather-related things, uh, as of 2.40, State Highway Highway 1, Waipu to Brindirwins, the detour is closed due to slips and flooding. The State Highway 1, Waipu to to Brindirwin, detour via Kaiwaka, Mangafai Road, that's closed. Uh, So light vehicles use State Highway 12 and Paparoa, Oakley Road to Whangarei. And heavy vehicles use State Highway 12, State Highway 14 via Dargaville. Look, jumping into our Friday mailbag, and we had quite a bit of response about various things. Of course, we had the weather, but we also had the return of the transistor radio, the importance of that. Uh, Back to the future, as they say, says Katie, panel, I bought this a few years ago because I was sick of having to log in to something just for the radio. I always have a packet of four times A's in the fridge in case the power goes out. And John says, Wallace, a technical point, old style radios had something in them called valves that would wear out with time and the radio would die until you replaced the valve. The first portable battery powered radios did away with valves using transistors instead, which didn't wear out. Now all radios use transistors 
whether portable or not. Uh, I don't have a transistor radio. Yesterday's panel did. What about you, Sue? Do you have a transistor? You have one? Not only do we have a transistor radio, always have one and take it with us when we travel, but when I, after the disaster, sort of ferreted around in my cupboard for my emergency kit bag, there was a wind-up transistor radio, which is even better. You just sort of wind it up. So if you find your long-lasting batteries are flat, you just wind up, you know, like a torch, your transistor radio. Definitely one to have in the pack. Good. Do they work? Absolutely. We tried it out. Martin? Yeah, I've got one. Yeah, we um, really just, um, I have like a little studio sleep out in my garden and it was, when I was doing it up, I sort of put it in there because I thought it was a little bit cute, but now it's become a little bit essential. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's um, but I do have one, yeah. And uh, we discussed yesterday. This is very interesting, actually. Uh, this was there was an article written by uh, urban uh, planning expert Timothy Welch. Why aren't more cables underground? Downed power lines became a really big issue. At one stage, tens of thousands of homes across the country without power. And Sharon writes, "I couldn't agree more that we should start cabling power lines underground. The economic cost of lost productivity, lost comms, residents' food going off in the fridge, etc." If all tallied up, I'm sure would far exceed over time the cost of cabling. Another one here, a here on why heck the breeze so much as have to look at a tree and the power goes out. Then we get, this is uh, Sue's point of view, then we get every Karen going wanting to use this as an excuse to cut down all our beautiful Arako, including natives such as Mahutukawa. We're in a climate crisis, so we need every tree that we can get. So, look, a little bit of power. Oh, here's one here, by the way. Heather says, this came in today. We still have no power since the cyclone. Bayswater, North Shore, Auckland. Victor is clueless and keeping telling us it's on while the power line is clearly still lying on the ground. Uh, very frustrated, says Heather. So nine days on, no power. What's your take on this, Sue? Uh, more undergrounding of cable lines? Well, I mean, yes, a good idea. Although in certain areas where the flooding was massive, that would not have helped, would it? And like for the Esk Valley, under mm. underground uh, power lines would not have helped. But I do agree that, you know, they're saying we've got to chop out, cut down all our trees near power lines. Yeah. That is another alternative. Martin? Yeah, I thought, I thought that one of the... I, look, I agree that we, we, underground where possible. But I, um, my understanding of it is um, that in earthquake-prone areas especially, the underground power lines, et cetera, are... Um, are not going to work because if there's a break in the line, it's very hard to find and difficult and even more difficult to repair. It's, um, whereas when they're overhead, they're easier to patch up and reattach and get the power back working um, more efficiently and quickly. So that's my understanding of it. But I think certainly where possible, they should be underground here. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a bit of response here. Sue says, I live in Titadangi and our power lines go out several times a year because the trees take up the wires. Uh, Victor told me they would never underground our wires because of the tree roots. Yet at the moment, mm. a crew is burying fibre rather happily. Uh, and I uh, have to come to this because we had uh, unex- was it unexpected. I don't know, but we had a huge response to this yesterday. A classic children's books by author Roald Dahl. They've been partly rewritten to remove language now deemed too offensive. So references to people being fat and ugly have been removed from much-loved books, including the BFG, Matilda, James and the Giant Peach. Here's a snippet from The Twits. Mrs. Twit was no better than her husband. She did not, of course, have a hairy face. 
It was a pity she didn't, because that at any rate would have hidden some of her fearful ugliness. You have never seen a woman with an uglier face. But the funny thing is that Mrs. Twit wasn't born ugly. She'd had quite a nice face when she was young. The ugliness had grown upon her year by year as she got older. So, yeah, large response. So Warren says, Wallace, absolutely not, never, nada, not. You wouldn't put pants on Michelangelo's David, would you? You wouldn't update Mona Lisa's hairstyle, then don't touch the box. It's a very slippery slope. Sue Kesley, what do you say to that? It, it is a bit of a slippery slope, but on the other hand, haven't they even um, changed the Lord's Prayer? It was all about mankind, and uh, you know we've had to now talk about humanity. I think they might have even uh, put the Bible into gender-neutral language, because if you think about it, everything was man and mankind. But I do think it's a slippery slope, and we can't sugarcoat everything. What do you reckon, Martin? Oh, leave it alone. Roll Dahl. Brilliant. You know, a wonderful storyteller. It, it, it was all about the language. And I think, you know, surely if it's that bit of a problem, you could put something at the beginning, at the front of the book that says at the time of writing when this book, this was, you know, this was acceptably, you know, for right or wrong, socially acceptable. But I think it's um, it's a shame to um, to play around with the man's words. Um, oh, well, I they, they, yeah, they, they were wonderful stories. I mean, they were, they were great stories. Well, um, uniformly in agreement here. You agree with uh, our panellists yesterday and indeed with our listeners. Nigel says, I would take up arms myself to defend in its original, unedited and almost certainly judged by today's standards, unacceptable form because it's a really important historical uh, artefact. And Margaret says, how ridiculous. Um, A fat little mouse is delightful. A mouse is just a mouse. The music of the sentence is gone. I said, uh, I, I suggested yesterday, why not? Why not just call the mouse a mouse? Why do you have to say fat little mouse? Um, who are we to judge? Uh, is it offensive? What do we whitewash? Uh, and Jane says, I totally disagree with the classic books being sanitised. Let the writer's voice be authentic and allow people to use their own brain to respond uh, to it. Very, very good. Oh, Mel Mel says. Left our small bay east of Whangarei to meet the school bus five minutes ago. Raining very heavily at my place. Middle of the bay, the road is flooded. Far end of bay, sunny with cicadas singing. So what is happening in your area regarding rain? It's uh, starting to fall rather heavily in places. So uh, you be our eyes and ears this afternoon on the panel. I've been thinking, Sue Kesley, take it away. Yeah, well, I I can't stop thinking really about those haunting images of huge piles and piles of forestry logs strewn along riverbanks, beaches along the East Coast for miles and miles, you know, destroying everything in their wake. And we've been sort of led to believe that forestry slash, quote unquote, as it's called, is just a sort of harmless byproduct of forestry you know it's the branches and the tree trimmings and so forth and what this what these images have exposed is that forestry slash is really just a pr word for the commercial waste or the logs that um are deemed to be unproductive that forestry companies leave behind and it got me thinking we don't allow other industries to leave their waste behind 
So why do we allow forestry companies to leave their commercial waste behind, especially when it causes such utter devastation and destruction? Surely we need to change the law, require forestry companies to clean up after them and remove all of their commercial waste. Yeah, that point was exactly mm. made by Simon Powell and, uh, yesterday on the panel. Yeah, very interesting, Sue. Thank you. Uh, all right, uh, Martin, I've been uh, thinking. I've been thinking. Well, Wallace, uh, as you know, one of the things I do these days is sell seafood, uh, and uh, you'll find no bigger oyster lover in the world than me. Um, adore them, live for them, love them. I've shucked thousands of them over the years. <laughs> um, and um, next week, March the 1st, marks the opening of the world's last wild, commercial wild dredge oyster fishery, the Bluff Oyster. Uh, and it's, you know, all around the country, restaurants are getting very excited by this news and they're putting out menus and running special promotions, all-you-can-eat oysters and blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And we all kind of carry on thinking, this is wonderful, this is great, but actually I don't think it is because I'm not so sure fishing for Bluff Oysters is a good thing right now. It's a fishery that is in a lot of trouble. And... The boats are getting ready, and they've done trial dredges already, and we're not really kind of talking about it, but we should. But the, the initial dredges haven't been good. The quality of oysters is not there. Uh, and there's not a lot of data around this fishery, you know. And um, the Whakatauke has always been, you know, when the titi are fat, the oysters are plump. Well, this year the titi have been really fat, and the oysters are not plump at all. Uh, people blame the phytoplankton. They blame climate change. They blame water, water temperatures. But the fact is we just don't know. What it is, it's not disease. Bonamia is at its lowest. It's been for years, so it's not high mortality there. But last year, oysters were, were were very small with a lot of what they call seconds, and this year is promising to possibly be even worse than than last year. Oh, no. And it's a fish that I think we just maybe, you know, some tough choices need to be made. Uh, and who's going to be brave enough to make those choices? But someone's going to have to say, you know what, this year we're just going to leave it alone. We might come back to that oyster. Brilliant mm. comments both, yeah. Uh, show and tell, standard for show and tell. Friday afternoons was run by the best teacher I ever had. It was a head-to-head knockout by student vote. And we saw many interesting things. So do you recall when you did a show and tell back at school in the day? You're on the panel with Sue Kedgley and Martin Bosley.